Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the Catholic Cafe's luxurious corner booth. Of course, joining me is Tom Doran. Welcome, Tom. How are you doing, Deacon Jeff? I'm doing awesome. You look awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was the pound cake. Exactly right. It's good stuff. The the Catholic Cafe has the best pound cake. I'm telling you. (laughs) But anyway, enough of that. Quickly to the subject. We have an awesome subject. In fact, our topic is one I think that um, a lot of Catholics wonder about and a a lot of non-Catholics wonder about as well. I think you're right. And that is this great mystery of the stigmata. Right. And, you know, we've all seen the movies. We've all... Um, read some of the books, and we've heard the stories, and we're not really sure what to think about. We have the Hollywood version. Yeah, I know. And so I think that uh, uh, we thought we'd bring an expert in here, someone who kind of right. knew something about the stigmata, but really to focus in specifically on the stigmata as uh, they occurred to uh, one particular saint, St. Francis. Right. And so when we're talking about St. Francis, we love to bring in our Franciscan Friars of the Renewal of course, to help us out. And so we have Father Solanus Ben Fatih uh, here to join us. Father um, thank you so much uh, for being with us here in the you're, luxurious corner booth. You're quite welcome. I'm really appreciative for the invitation to be here with you. Well, wonderful. Right. You have got a, a brand new book called The Five Wounds of St. Francis. And in this book, you discuss really what's going on with the stigmata as they related to St. Francis. But maybe we want to start with just sort of a general discussion. Of, let's define what the stigmata are. Well, sure. When you're talking about the stigmata, you're talking about a mystical mystical phenomenon that has occurred in the lives of many saints now through the ages since the time of St. Francis, where wounds that resemble the wounds of Christ's crucifixion appear on the body of the saint in physical form. And it's a particular mystical phenomenon that seems to be something that God wants to do to indicate some theological truth to those that would meet this saint or encounter this particular holy person. The interesting thing, of course, for my book is that I wanted to look at the stigmata that appeared on the body of Francis of Assisi because, as we know, he was the first to ever experience this particular phenomenon. And so it must be interesting to ask the question, What would it have been like for Francis, who wasn't familiar with this concept or this phenomenon, to look down on his own limbs and see these Christ-like wounds on his body? The saints to follow him that would experience this at least had there was some kind of track record. That's precisely the point. They would be able to see how other saints might have dealt with this, and and it wouldn't. While it wouldn't be. Ordinary, it's very extraordinary, but they would at least have some kind of idea of how to deal with this and what this might mean for them. But but St. Francis, uh, God bless him, he had no idea what was going on. That's right. It, It would have been something completely new to try to understand, to try to ask the question, what does this mean for me? And something which many of the those who bore stigmata experienced. Those, it, it, it's a phenomenon that draws attention to you and it is occurring in the lives of people who are very humble and aren't looking for attention. And so certainly Francis would have had that to deal with, which is why the early sources about his life, the medieval biographical sources we have, 
always indicate that Francis tried his best to keep these wounds a secret. In fact, he didn't really show them to anyone, while a few of his companions managed to see them or to know about them before his death. It wasn't till his actual death and when his body was laying in state that his wounds, this particular sign for the people was revealed to all of those that were about. Now, you mentioned seeing uh, medieval sources. What kind of sources did you use here? What's out there that you were able to glean uh, information from? Because I understand that St. Francis himself didn't really write about this and discuss it, right? That's right. While we have writings of Francis, uh, a very fascinating thing for someone who is called or called himself illiterate. We do have writings of his, and as a matter of fact, we even have what we call autograph writings of his. We have some of his own handwriting. Mm. In fact, one little parchment that is relevant for this topic, but it's true. He did not write a word about this subject, which is one of the things that makes the historical study of it quite difficult kind of a tightrope walk, something to go about very carefully, not jumping to conclusions, because there are many pitfalls that one can fall into. However, the biographical sources for his life that go back to the first decades after his death are many, and the kind of we could call dossier of sources for his life is a very, very rich one, and it's one that medieval scholars are very fascinated with, especially in Europe. And so there's really a whole field of study that looks at these sources, and I was able to try to enter into a conversation with historians who meticulously analyze these sources, and in particular, in recent decades, have renewed a conversation about the stigmata of Francis. You mentioned that you were able to glean from, from these sources that, that Francis did everything he could to, to hide this, to keep it from, from others. Did you get a sense of why he would do that? Was he ashamed? Was he uncertain? Was it just so mysterious to him that he wasn't sure what to do with it? The central note of Francis's spirituality, which might surprise some because we have so many popular images of Francis, but they're so often far from the mark or at least superficial. The central note of Francis' spirituality was one of recognizing his own littleness, we could say, or his own spiritual poverty. In other words, what? In other words, his dependence on God. It was a recognition that every good thing that he has, quote-unquote, or experiences or that happens through him really belongs to God and so must be returned to God. And so Francis was one who went about with a great concern for retaining that kind of humility, that kind of humility that said, this good doesn't belong to me, this good Mm -hmm. is attributable to God. And so he was... Afraid might not be the right word, but concerned to always check himself from attributing any good thing to him and certainly a mystical phenomenon like these wounds that made him Christ-like 
in the eyes of others. Well, that was a scary thing to navigate. It went against everything that, that you've told us about St. Francis. Right. I mean, it, it, the idea, and you were telling us earlier, the stigmata were a very visible sign, right? They That's were there, p- And people would see this, and then instantly they would make that connection, you know, the sufferings of Jesus Christ and this holy man. Right. right? And that's probably the last thing that St. Francis wanted you to make that connection. That's precisely the difficulty with any of the saints who have had the true phenomenon of of, of, of stigmata that are divine in origin is that they are made to wrestle with this and to the these are those people who recognize their their littleness before the greatness of god and are afraid that others might be confused about that in the little bit of reading i've done about the stigmata i don't recount any saints Asking for it, pleading for it, wanting it, desiring it for, especially for some selfish reason, uh, and that when it's presented to them, that there's that great difficulty in in, uh, in dealing with it. So it it really comes to them in their extreme humility. That's exactly the case. Certainly, there might be some saints later on who were willing to accept. For example, let's say there was a saint like Padre Pio, uh, Saint Pio of Pietrocina who felt that God was asking him to share in the sufferings of Christ, as it were, for the sake of his body, the church, like St. Paul writes about in his letter to the Colossians. And so if Padre Pio felt that Christ was offering him some greater share in his suffering in order to, in order to participate in the redemption of people, then he would have wanted to accept that. And that is the case. Although even in his case, he begged God that they only be there in, in the physical feeling, but not the physical expression. I just recently read uh, the account. They just published the account of uh, the examination Right, and it's all of the the examinations of of Saint Peter. And I know we're not solely f- focusing so much on him, and, but that point you point out is like he willingly accepted, he, he willingly suffered uh, the wounds of Christ, uh, and and he embraced it, but at the same time uh, covered it. Didn't want to talk about it. Didn't really want to make that to say, "Look at me, I've got the wounds of Christ." That's right. And that and that book actually that you were mentioning is. Is um, I can't remember for sure if in English it's called Padre Pio under the Inquisition or something, something like that. The Inquisition of Padre Pio. I had I seen it in another language, and I and I can't recall now that it's been. Father, published. I can only read one language, <laughs> <laughs> and I wish it had more pictures in it. That would have helped me even more. But <laughs> only to say that it's a it's a really relevant book for a couple of reasons. One is because if we didn't have that book and. And for all practical purposes, we didn't until just a year or right. two ago. It was just because released it was from released the archives exactly of the Vatican. Exactly, from the secret archives of the Vatican. And so without that, we knew very little about Padre Pio's subjective right. experience of this objective phenomenon. And it was because people would certainly ask him about it all the time, but he often deflected the questions. And right. he felt that there was a, an inordinate curiosity And so he would sort of change the subject and try to deflect attention off of himself. And sometimes he felt that people weren't sincere, and so he didn't treat their questions with much interest. But all of a sudden, when 
Holy Mother, the Church, let's say, comes to him in the person of this bishop who's representing the Holy Office. Obedience. Yes. Right. He and opened his wounds and said, here they are. That's right. And you get the real sense in that interview that, that Padre Pio is resigned to answer any question that he's asked simply, objectively, truthfully. And again, to go back to something we had discussed earlier, even in this interview, we have, therefore, words, autobiographical words, in the first person, sworn under oath by Padre Pio about his experience. But for Francis of Assisi, we just... We don't have that. We just don't have that. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a lot more detective work, so to speak. We're going to talk more about St. Francis. We'll get back on that subject and the stigmata and what they meant to him. And we'll do that in just a moment. First, we'd like to remind everyone at home that we have a wonderful website. It's www.thecatholiccafe.com. Also, I'd love for you to email me at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, we'll be right back with more of St. Francis. I'm Bess Drzemski, and this is another great moment in church history. Claire Ofreduccio was born in 1194, the daughter of a count and countess. When only 18 years old, she heard the preaching of St. Francis of Assisi and was moved to follow the way of the Franciscan brothers and vow herself to a life of poverty, forsaking all the worldly comforts that her family could offer her. She gave herself totally to God, her eternal spouse. Upon the insistence of her friend St. Francis, St. Clair founded the Order of Poor Ladies, later called the Poor Clares. The Poor Clares lived a life of extreme austerity and of absolute poverty. Instead of beds, they slept on twigs with blankets of hemp. The old walls and ceilings were laden with cracks, and the cold and wet weather seeped through. They relied totally on God's generosity to survive. They devoted themselves to prayer in silence. St. Clair's love of the Eucharist was well known. She looked to the presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament as her dearest love. She found great strength in receiving our Lord in Holy Communion and spent many an hour in Eucharistic adoration. Referring to adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, St. Clair said, Gaze upon Him, consider Him, contemplate Him as you desire to imitate Him. And she took her own advice to heart. Of St. Clair, Pope John Paul the Great said, Her whole life was a Eucharist, because from her cloister, she raised up continual thanksgiving to God in her prayer, praise, supplication, intercession, weeping, offering, and sacrifice. There are many miracles associated with St. Clair. Tradition tells of an attack from hordes of Saracen mercenaries who were advancing on the convent. She displayed a monstrance containing the Blessed Sacrament and prayed intently before it. Suddenly and inexplicably, the Saracens retreated. Later in her life, her health began to seriously fail. On Christmas Eve, she was not able to attend Holy Mass at the newly constructed Basilica of St. Francis. Instead, God permitted St. Clair to see the entire Mass in a clear and perfect vision on the wall of her small cell. It's no wonder that for this miracle, she was named the patroness of television. Just before dawn on August the 11th, in the year 1253, St. Clair, foundress of the Poor Clares, 
pass quietly into the welcoming arms of Jesus. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this has been another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the Catholic Cafe's luxurious corner booth, and we're still talking to Father Solanus Ben-Fatih. So thank you so much for being with us and, and, and helping us on this little journey about St. Francis and the stigmata. So I know that in modern times there's been lots of thought about this, especially since there's no authoritative <clears throat> historical record from the perspective of, you know, or at least autobiographical or, or the idea that St. Francis said this about the stigmata. And there's some theologians that maybe even doubt or have postulated that he didn't actually have the stigmata. And what are we to think about that, and, and does that play into our conversation? Because I know you spent some time in the book discussing that, maybe quite some time in the book discussing that. What, what I had originally wanted to do with the book was to discuss the spiritual meaning of the stigmata of Francis, the spiritual and theological experience of Francis of the stigmata. But the problem was, before I could get to that, I had to deal with the historical question. Yeah, did it happen? Did it happen? And not just for the academic discussion, but because, in fact, it is a question that historians have been discussing for quite some time. Going back, especially, not even beginning then, but especially in the 19th century at, if you're familiar at all with theology, it happens to be not coincidentally but at the exact same time that theologians were first calling into question certain things in sacred scripture, so certain... Right, we've all seen the History Channel's programs on whether or not the... Uh, how can you scientifically explain uh, Jesus walking on water? Was there a flash freeze right of the sea at the time? Or And there'll be these discussions about the historical record, and if they were to contradict what sacred scripture said, then there's no need to discuss the spiritual nature of the event if the event didn't happen. You got it. And so what you had first with scripture and then not following long after with Francis was, one, a good and authentic desire to study critically the sources to be careful in the way the sources were studied, to study them, quote-unquote, scientifically, but it came at a price because oftentimes there was a bit of ideology involved. And the way you just put it is, is accurate that the presumption was you can't explain scientifically someone walking on water, therefore it must not have happened, therefore I have to figure out why it was that this writer made up the story. Mm. It's a very backward way of thinking if you're talking about the I action. I think backwards. That's, that's, that's my uh, <laughs> right. characteristic. If the divine is going to break into time and space and human activity, well, you might just see miraculous things happening, no? Well, the same type of questions were posed to the sources for the life of St. Francis. Why would we think that this man had these wounds on his body, especially when we don't have any testimony from him about them? We don't have any scientific, quote-unquote, certainty that these things happened. So in the 19th century, you had some scholarly articles discussing these types of things, and it fizzled out a bit, but then 
In the early 1990s, I guess, the question was renewed, revived, and some fine historians, otherwise important and quality European medievalists, began to ask this question again, and it became very popular even to say, you know, Francis probably did not actually have these wounds, or if he did have these wounds, they probably were merely something that happened to appear coincidentally like five wounds of Christ. Who knows? Perhaps, these scholars said, perhaps it was simply that he had contracted leprosy from all of his work with lepers. And so if I wanted to deal with the spiritual question, I had to delve headlong into these questions and try to see what sense I could make of it. And that may have been a different direction you were thinking the book was going to go, but you sort of found your way there. And so having done that without telling too much about the end of the book, where do you, where do you end up? Well, the beautiful thing that you discover about the spiritual experience of Francis is that he is not that mantelpiece saint, or worse, the birdbath saint we often encounter, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? But he was a holy, holy man, and yet endowed with a humanity just like ours. And so, when Francis of Assisi has this experience, this mystical experience on this little mountain called Laverna in Tuscany in Italy in 1224, two years before his death, when he has this experience there, it happens in the context of his real life. Just like our real lives have their own trajectory and we have normal human struggles, don't we? Even while we try to pursue God's will and we try to go before him each day in our hearts and follow wherever it is that he wants to lead us, we do so in the midst of trials. Now, I thought, though, that St. Francis was the saint of joy. I mean, every Franciscan friar that I've met has a smile on their face, you know, and so... How is it that this man could have these kind of struggles? Right. Francis is the saint of joy. There's no doubt about it. And yet he struggled at moments in his life, particularly in these months leading up to his stigmatization, with a kind of a joylessness. That's one thing that does come out in these early sources of his life, which is surprising because oftentimes these medieval lives of saints happened to not mention some of the more human elements. But in these cases, it came through because these authors thought it was important. And, for example, Francis struggled with some of the evolution of the order and felt that there were friars in his religious order that he had founded some years earlier who were losing the original inspiration and who were seeking ambition, for example, and losing their original simplicity. And this was a great, great suffering for him. And the sources say that he was suffering from a, quote, grave temptation, not of the body but of the spirit during these days. And it seems to be related to this struggle of this evolution of the order. And he seems to have been struggling to let go and to surrender this to God. And we remember that Francis is known for his poverty, but spiritual poverty was the most important thing and the last thing that Francis had to let go of, let go of and surrender, in a sense, was the order. And so he brooded 
in a kind of joylessness. He was moody for a while, <laughs> you know, and he could not even be around some of the brothers at certain times, according to some of these early sources. And this is the context in which God breaks into his life again, just like he had broken into his life years earlier, 20 years earlier, when he had been something of a selfish, young, wealthy man, a son of a wealthy merchant, and God had shaken him out of that existence, now God was giving him another calling to refocus his energies on following Christ wherever he leads in the way that he leads. So this is a very physical and real way in which God speaks to St. Francis and sort of reminds him of his calling, reminds him of his mission. You have to imagine that Francis of Assisi looks down from this day forward at his own body to see a physical, absolutely physical reminder of who the person is that he's following. The one he's following bore wounds similar to these, but bore them without brooding, bore them without this melancholic spirit, bore them with a surrender to the will of the Father that Francis was now being called to imitate. Francis was now being called to follow. It gave him a great consolation. This appearance on his body of these five wounds was accompanied by or happened around the same time as the apparition of a seraph angel to him. And the early sources say, including an eyewitness, well, perhaps not an eyewitness, but a witness of his companion Leo, who was with him during those very days and received a little note from Francis on a parchment that we still have today, amazingly. 800 years later, this Leo, this companion, was able to say that Francis experienced from this apparition of this seraph a great, great consolation, a kind of a soothing balm on this interior wound that he was suffering. And this shook him from his joylessness and refocused him in the call to follow in the footsteps of Christ wherever he would lead. That's beautiful. That's a, and that's an insight that I think many of us don't have about or haven't had up to now about this. And so this wonderful work you have here, The Five Wounds of St. Francis, is available from Tan Publishing, uh, wherever the Tan books are sold. And it's a, it's a wonderful uh, gift to the church. We appreciate that, uh, Father Solanus, for you providing uh, not only the book, but uh, to be here to uh, talk to us about it here at the Catholic Cafe. Well, I'm very grateful to you for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Father Solanus, would you, uh, would you do us a, a favor and uh, offer a prayer? to close us out? Sure. I pray to Almighty God in thanksgiving for every good thing that he does for us. I pray that he would bless each one of us who listen to this program, that he would bring us along his way, that he would make us to follow in the footsteps of his son Jesus wherever those footsteps would lead. And I pray that Almighty God bless you and all of your listeners in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association.
and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stein, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.